All right, let's let's pray and get into it. Father God, um, thank you for another opportunity to dig in to your word, to dig into this book, uh, Revelation, which opens up so much to us in terms of your word, your plan, and your glory. God, I pray for tonight uh, as we're dealing with a, a difficult letter. Um, that you would bless us and help us see how we could utilize this uh, for our own relationship with you and for Parkminster um, and how, what we can do um, to really bless you as a church and to follow you correctly. God, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds tonight as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been following along, we just finished chapter two a couple of weeks ago, which was the church of Thyatira. Um, the Church of Thyatira, the name actually means perpetual sacrifice. We didn't put in the recording last week that perpetual sacrifice, ironically, as it relates to the prophetic timeline of being the church in the Middle Ages, um, the doctrine of perpetual sacrifice was introduced to the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages, uh, meaning that they believed that when the priest blesses the elements, literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus, um, and the sacrifice takes place over and over and over again each time you celebrate communion. Um, instead of following Jesus' words, which are, it is finished on the cross, and that's a one-time needed sacrifice, and it's over. Instead, we understand that the elements are symbolic of that, and we remember that moment that it is finished for us, and that sacrifice was once and for all. Um, but we are now moving into the Church of Sardis. So, uh, if you've been, been following along, you know that the, there's seven, seven letters to seven different churches. Um, four of the letters are unique in that two of the letters have nothing positive said about the churches, and two of the letters have nothing negative said about the churches. We ran into one of those letters already in Smyrna, um, the second letter in chapter 2, where nothing negative was said about them. The church that was going through persecution, even though they were experiencing poverty, um, they were standing up for their faith and persevering, and Jesus had nothing negative to say about the church in Smyrna. Today, though, we're getting into a church where there's nothing positive said, the first of the two, uh, where nothing positive is said about the church. Um, so it's a little bit difficult, but just some background on the church of Sardis and the town so you can understand a little bit about where this letter is coming from. So Sardis was the most westward city on the Persian trade route. Uh, it was a very, very wealthy city because it was an end point to a trade route. There was a lot of merchants in the city. Um, and one of the reasons that a lot of wealth and a lot of merchants hung around in Sardis is because there was a lot of gold in the city of Sardis. It was a city on a on a hill. It was very hilly. It was on a mountaintop. Um, it almost seemed like impregnable. It was a, a military stronghold, and it, it was a very very easily defensible city because of the way that it was built up on a hill um, and being surrounded by other mountains. So because of that, it was a very easily defensible city. However, in Sardis's history, there were twice where it was 
overtaken in the middle of the night, basically because of arrogance, because it seemed impregnable. Um, it, might, it reminds me of like the arrogance with the Titanic, the unsinkable ship. Um, that sort of arrogance in the city and how it was impregnable led to it being caught, caught and captured and overturned a couple of different times in its history. It's also the city where the first coins were minted in the ancient world. Because there was a, a river that ran through the middle of the city, and it deposited a lot of gold um, in, in the city, so it made for a ton of wealth. So there was actually a king um, in the city long before this was taken out, but it's basically the, the king that the Midas Touch myth was um, built off of because there was so much gold in the city of Sardis. So it was a very, very wealthy city, um, and they had a lot of things going for it. So that's the type of place that we're dealing with. Now, we've walked through a sit, uh, church that was had a lot of good things going for it, you know, solid doctrine. They did a lot of work, but they lost their, they lost their first love. That was Ephesus. Smyrna, that was the persecuted church, the church that persevered through everything that they dealt with. Then you had uh, Pergamum, the church that became married to the state. There's a lot of state-run things involved with the church. Uh, and then the church of Thyatira, which was the, the married church, the church that sort of married pagan practices with the Christian religion. Uh, and those were the things that Jesus had against it. Now, as we get into view, the church of Sardis, you're going to see something a little bit different in the evolution of the seven churches. So here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So let's stop and pause there. Remember, first of all, that angel can also be translated messenger. You can be dealing directly with the leaders or pastors um, of the churches. And we also want to know every time what the name that Jesus calls himself to the church is. So to this church, he calls himself, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is relating back to chapter one, when he talks about the fact that he holds the seven lampstands and the seven stars in his hand, which are seven messengers and the seven churches. Um, the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God is how it could also be translated is really relating to the completeness of God. Seven is always in relation to completeness. Um, and the seven stars are the seven messengers. So, Jesus is saying, in my completeness, I hold the seven messengers. He says, I know your works, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So this is a place that had a solid reputation among the seven churches, it might have been the place to be. It might have been the place that all the other churches sort of looked up to. Like, they thought, this is the place. Sardis really has it going on. It doesn't seem like they're being persecuted. It doesn't seem like they're getting a lot of judgment. But they have this reputation. for. I don't know if they were full to the brim. I don't know. We don't know much about the actual church in Sardis, other than what Jesus tells us in this letter. But apparently... It was the place to be. It had a solid reputation. But Jesus saw beneath the surface. 
And he said, you are dead. You are spiritually dead, which is what he's referring to. They were a spiritually dead church. Verse 2. He immediately, like I said, there's nothing positive. He doesn't go into all of the good things about the church, so already he's correcting them. Second verse in, first verse he tells them they're dead. The second verse he starts correcting them. There's nothing positive going on here. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So already he's saying, listen, you're a spiritually dead church. Here's what you should do. Be watchful. Be ready for the fact that I'm coming back. Secondly, strengthen the things that aren't yet dead, that are about to die. Strengthen those things. Because that's your only hope. Because the things you've done, the works you've done, they're not perfect before God. And so, remember then how you received and heard, hold fast and repent. So he's saying, remember what it was like when you first heard the gospel. Hold fast to what it was like when you first heard the gospel and what changed in you. Hold on to that and repent from where you are now and turn back to what it was like when you first heard the gospel. Now the interesting thing about this is this is this church is only 30 years old. And it started out, just like the rest of them, probably pretty good. In a short period of time, it turned really sour. And Jesus is saying these things to them. So, he moves on. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. This is always in judgment. Whenever Jesus is talking about coming as a thief, it's not in a positive light. That's always talking about coming in judgment. It's usually in reference directly to the second coming. So I know sometimes you hear the he's going to come like a thief in the night as a reference to the rapture. It's not a reference to the rapture. It's a reference to his second coming when he comes in judgment. But there is actually a reference to the rapture in this. So, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will know, you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Again, that just references Jesus' whole statement about no one knows the day or the hour. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I would highlight that verse or circle it if I were you. He's saying, even though I have nothing good to say about this church as a whole, there's a few people who are still holding on, who still really believe, and who are still holding true. And those people haven't defiled their garments. And in the next statement, he says that they will be in white garments. That's really important to remember that as we move on to chapter 4. But there's a phrase in here that's really important. 
This is, they shall walk with me. Um, William Barclay points out in his commentary that this could be a reference to Enoch. We don't know who Enoch is offhand. He's mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, most notably in chapter 5 of Genesis, um, which is just a genealogy. It takes you from Adam to Noah, and it just goes down the list. But Enoch actually ends up being a really important character in understanding some of this. So Enoch was the father of Methuselah. Methuselah is the oldest man who ever lived in the Bible. Um, because he named his son Methuselah, you can definitely tell that Enoch was a really good prophet. Enoch means teacher or prophet. Methuselah, which is what he named his son, means his death shall bring. So Enoch knew that there was a destruction coming. He named his son his death shall bring to predict the destruction that was coming upon the earth. The year that Methuselah died is the year that the flood started. You can do the math in the years um, in Genesis 5 um, and the, I think, Genesis 7, where it mentions how that Noah was 600 years old when the flood started. And you can do the math of, of when um, Methuselah was born. And you find out Noah was 600 years old when Methuselah died, which is the year that the flood started. So Enoch predicted the flood. Enoch is also quoted in, June, in the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, Enoch points out that the Lord would be coming with tens of thousands of his saints. So that's part of what we get the picture of Jesus' second coming from, that he's coming back with his church. So Enoch predicted the first destruction and what it would look like when Jesus comes back in the second destruction. He's a really good prophet, and he did that all the way before the flood. But there's a really interesting piece of Enoch's story. Enoch never died. It actually states in Genesis 5, he was, I think, 300 and, he was 300 and something years old, and then it says, and he walked with the Lord. He never died. Everybody else, it, ex it explicitly says that they die. It just says, Enoch then walked with the Lord. So he was removed as a person who was ready and watching he was removed before the destruction came. That's a picture. Enoch brings us a picture of what the rapture will be for the church to be removed before the destruction comes. Enoch, interestingly, not a descendant of Noah, but not a part of the continued promise. So he's clearly a Gentile. You get other pictures of that in the Old Testament as well. Lot is another good example. Lot, not an actual descendant of Abraham, but someone who was grafted into the family as his nephew, was removed from Sodom and Gomorrah before that destruction. So we see this continual picture of the righteous being removed, or the, the righteous who are ready being removed before the destruction comes. And so you get this promise to the overcomers in the church of Sardis that you will walk with God in white garments, representing the purity of Jesus. The book of Isaiah tells us that all of our works 
are filthy rags before God. So if we're clothed in white, we must be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So we will walk with God in white. And it's the same language as Enoch and how he walked with God and never died. So I find that to be incredibly interesting. So, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So, I gotta tell you, this is a verse I still really haven't come to terms with. I don't really, I understand what it's saying in this context, that those who overcome, those who follow Christ and persevere to the end, even survive in a dead church, you will receive everlasting life. Your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. That's what this is saying here. The part where I struggle is the idea that my name could be blotted out of the book of life. Now, there is multiple ideas about this doctrine, whether it's the Calvinist version of predestination and election, where once you're saved, you're always saved because God had always intended for you to be saved. There's the, even even still, the Arminian point of view, which all these terms are just theological and they don't really matter. I'll explain a little bit. Basically, that everything is based on our free will. But once you are saved, you are you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and you cannot lose your salvation. And then there are others, um, and I think John Wesley helped to in his theology that you could lose your salvation. And so there are verses in the Bible that really make you dig into the idea that you can't. Once saved, always saved. But this is one of the ones that makes me go, my name can be blotted out of the book of life. And so I don't have a real answer. But I, I will say that's something for everybody to wrestle with because I don't I don't know the answer. Um, but I, I, I do know that I want to persevere and I don't want to give up. And even when things seem bad or when it seems like there's no hope, I want to hold on because I don't I don't want to give up because I don't want my name to be blotted out of the book of life. And I don't I don't know if it can or if it can't. But ultimately, I'd rather be safe. And I just want to follow God to the end. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, again, as he ends every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters were meant, yes, for the individual church. It was meant for individuals within the church but it was also meant for every church. Every church that was in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey that these were sent to, but also every church that has existed through history. And so as we've been going through this, we've been understanding a few things. We want to recognize the name Jesus gives himself to the church and how that pertains to the city. And with this one, the completeness of God is interesting to a church that's completely dead. I don't really know what to do with that. 
But I do know that he tells them to be watchful and strengthen the things which which do remain. Which is interesting for a city that had gotten so arrogant multiple times that they didn't watch and then were taken over. So they had a history of understanding how important it is to remain watchful and remain prepared because you never know when it's going to happen. And we've talked about how this is a local church, which is why we go into the background a little bit. But there's also a pro- potentially a prophetic piece that takes us through history. And we just left the Dark Ages in Thyatira, if there's a prophetic profile to the churches. So what does the Church of Sardis represent in a prophetic profile to us? This is harsh. The Reformed Church. This represents the Reformation Church. Which we might not like to think about, but the fact of the matter is, even though Martin Luther, who led the Reformation, he struggled in his life always with the fact that he couldn't reconcile his own sin. And all of the doctrine and all of the church writings from the Middle Ages that he had been inundated with in his pursuit of knowledge and his pursuit being a monk and trying to understand what the Bible, what God says. And at the time, anything written from Rome was considered as good as scripture. And so he had all of these church writings that he was holding on to and church traditions and ideas that he was holding on to. And he would pay indulgences and he would whip himself and beat himself and he was tormented trying to figure out how he could reconcile his sin with what was going on inside of him. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't understand why he still felt so guilty all the time. Until he became a professor um, as a monk and he decided to study the Bible. Ironically, instead of just church writing, he studied the Bible itself. And he started to see the doctrine of grace. In understanding that salvation comes by faith through grace. And that's what Martin Luther, that's what led him to write his 95 theses, nail him on the church in Wittenberg. And, and he wasn't even intending to create a divide in the church. He wanted to fix what was wrong within the church. And they just excommunicated him and kicked him out. And then they, actually the 95 theses were the first thing that they printed on the printing press. Um, because they knew, this is interesting, because it, this is how the world still works. They wanted to print the first thing on the printing press, something that would be controversial, because they knew controversy would sell. Our world is still like that. Um, that's how headlines work. And so, you would think, right, this church would not... A church in, in prophetic history, you wouldn't think would be based off of that sort of movement. Right? Someone who finally got back to what the scriptures say and focused solely on the person of Jesus and not these other sort of propped up ideas that were sort of mixed in with pagan ideas, went back to the ideas of scripture, removed the role of the priest as the one you confess to in understanding that you're supposed to go directly to Jesus and you shouldn't have a spiritual father other than your Father in Heaven. 
foot. You can even still see in the wake of today a lot of the a lot of the churches that were born out of the Reformation area uh, era, I should say. They don't look that different from the church they broke away from, outside of the fact that they don't hold confession. It doesn't look that it doesn't look that different, and they still even had a lot of ideas, in, in uh, a lot of problems and, and things that didn't work. In, in Methodism, John John Wesley was one of the reformers. In Methodism, they used to charge for the seats in the in the sanctuary. Um, and that's actually B.T. Roberts. So we have Roberts Wesleyan right down the road. So B.T. Roberts added on to Wesleyan theology. And basically all he really added was stop charging people for the seats. And that's why he what he started was called free Methodism. Yeah. John, John Calvin missed the idea of free will. And soul was only sold on predestination. Now, I am going to give you a little bit of my understanding of this because the Bible absolutely talks about predestination and election. And if you if you don't see it, you're just not looking because it's it's there. It's all through Paul's letters. But the Bible also clearly talks about free will, and I don't understand how those two things are married, but I do understand that God knows more than I do, and that's how I live with it. So I don't deny the doctrine of predestination or election. But I also understand that free will is also a portion of the scripture. Now, we say, point out all of this because the Reformation era still had a lot of flaws. But the biggest one was that it continued the sort of anti-Semitism that cropped up in the Catholic Church in, in the Dark Ages. They continued the um, replacement theology, which is they replaced Israel as God's chosen people with the church. And they believe that all of the promises to Israel are now represented in the church. And it actually led to some of the issues. Um, you know, nobody really preached their love for for Israel or for the Jewish people, or understood that God's promises were still meant for them, um, which kind of didn't help curb didn't help curb any of the um, hatred in World War II. But Thankfully, out of that, we did get a rebirth of the nation of Israel. Now, replacement theology is a big issue because if you hold to it, you will be—it will be very hard for you to understand the Book of Revelation because there are clear promises in the Old Testament to Israel that you finally start to see coming to fruition. Now. The reason that I, I don't hold to this replacement theology is because the covenant with Abraham was a covenant that was only one-sided. God didn't say, if your descendants do this, then they will get to keep these promises. 
It was just a promise for Abraham that his descendants would be in that land forever. And it was the same when he promised Jacob. It was the same when he promised Jacob that the scepter wouldn't leave Judah in Genesis 49. All of these promises were only one-sided covenants from God that he made promises to Israel. We'll get into some of that as we move forward. I just want you to understand that God made promises directly to the people of Israel that were still meant for the people of Israel. And when you can separate Israel from the church, Revelation and some of the promises and prophecies start to make a whole lot more sense. Otherwise, you see it as just great symbolism that you can't really comprehend. Once you do separate those two things, the imagery of the Old Testament becomes really clear in the book of Revelation, and you start to be able to actually interpret it and understand what it says, which is the whole point. The name of the book of Revelation means unveiling, and it is the unveiling of Jesus in God's hand. And that is very exciting for us, and he wants us to understand it, so we shouldn't muddy the waters. And just let, let God's promises be exactly what he said they were. So, let's pray, because that's what we have time for tonight. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to get together tonight and just expound on your word and understand what you're telling us. Help us as we move forward through these churches to understand what we can do better and what we can get rid of as a church here to be a church that reflects your will and what you want us to be. God, help us understand in our own personal lives um, how we can be convicted by what you've said about these churches to know that we are on your path. Help us to just know you better and see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.